Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's six months since the Connecticut Inside Investigator launched. We catch up with them to see how things are going, talk about freedom of speech in the state and their investigative fellowship. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's been six months since the online news outlet The Connecticut Inside Investigator launched, and in that time they have broken a lot of great investigative stories. They're just a small startup, but already punching well above their weight, with reports about state agencies here in Connecticut and covering other stories of general interest. So it's always nice to catch up with a new venture and see how things are shaking out. And I spoke with Mark Fitch, senior investigative reporter at Inside Investigator, to find out more and to talk about a fascinating piece he wrote about freedom of speech here in Connecticut and how they're looking for writers in the state as well. Mark, nice to have you back on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Brian. It's good to be with you. So I can't believe six months since I last spoke to you and the rest of the team. Where's the year gone? Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm terrified because Christmas is around the corner. But yeah, it's been a very quick year. And especially starting things off with Connecticut Inside Investigator, the rush of stories and getting stuff out on schedule and just the in general, the, the whole startup atmosphere of it has time has just flown by, you know, and I can't believe it's been six months. And at the same time, it feels like it's been six years. And the other thing is as well, I mean, how's it uh, has it been taken, obviously, by the readers? It's always nice when something new turns up. But I mean, proof in the pudding is whether or not people are eating it. So are your select readers eating it up? They are. We have been growing consistently every single week. We've got new email signups. We've got new social media followers. We have new readers. And I think part of the appeal is that we do things a little differently, particularly with our investigative pieces or our feature pieces that come out every Sunday, in that we really take a person-centric storyline in that you know, we try to find person or group of people who are being affected by something and tell their story. It's a little different from what I think other news outlets in Connecticut do. And it really allows us to establish relationships with our sources. And, you know, and you talk to somebody like, all right, who should I talk to next? And then you go talk to those people. So I think it's different. It's a little innovative in our presentation. If people go to our website and see how it is that we present our stories, we do some interesting media stuff. And in general, I think, yeah, we're having pretty good pickup. And only six months in to be growing at the rate we're growing, I think is a sign of success. And we're happy to be doing it, blazing that trail into the future here in the next six months. 
The other thing as well, as I think we've said it, you know, there is a nice mix as well, because it's got these good investigative pieces, which I know take a lot of time. I mean, investigative reporting is really underrated and around as much as it should be. And all kudos to people like yourself, because it does take a lot of time, a lot of effort, more than just, you know, so like standard reporting. But you do have the standard reporting as well on there. So I think it's that nice mixture of stories, which, as you say, I think makes you a little bit different. And also, there's a good use of graphics and video. I mean, I've noticed quite a few videos from yourself and from your other team members, which I think is nice as well, because I don't see a lot of other organizations doing these very personal videos with the reporter, sort of teasing almost, you know, the story, which I think also is is helpful. Yeah. And it, it also gives a, you know, kind of personal touch as well. You know, and we hope that people feel comfortable reaching out to us as people and not not just, you know, these talking heads or, you know, media figures. Give us a call, shoot us an email and tell us what's going on with you. And and that's really how we get so many of our larger feature pieces is people calling up and saying, hey, you know, I've been trying to get word out about this and, you know, nobody's really listening. And yeah, those investigative pieces, they can take a long time because sometimes these stories are long and complicated and not easy to put together in a format that your average reader is really going to be able to kind of follow the bouncing ball on. I'm working on one right now that's you know quite complex and it's part of the problem is figuring out how to present it in such a way that it makes sense because it's a lot of moving parts. Well, we're going to be talking about one of them right now. And it was a piece that came out a little while ago, and it was titled The Battle Between Free Speech Protections and Connecticut Law. I've read it. It was very eye-opening, and I'm sure it was for you when you were obviously doing the whole research and the writing of it. So tell us a little bit about it. Oh, absolutely. So this particular piece, the, The Battle Between Free Speech and Connecticut Law, It centers around Connecticut General Statutes 53-37, which makes it a misdemeanor to ridicule by advertisement any person or class of persons on account of, you know, creed, religion, denomination, nationality, race, all those different things. It's a law that's been on the books since the early 20th century, and it's now being challenged in court, and it's being challenged on the basis of free speech, that it violates First Amendment. And, you know, pretty much everybody I talk to seems to think that this law is going to get shot down because it makes the content of speech the problem. And that really doesn't hold up under First Amendment challenges. So there's that. And then as I explored, you know, the issues around 53-37, it kind of opened a can of worms into these other First Amendment challenges that are going on, you know, having to do with Connecticut. One has to do with a quote-unquote speech code for lawyers. Another one has to do with fighting words. And a man who was arrested back in 2014 for saying some truly awful things to a parking attendant, but he was arrested for saying those awful things. One court upheld his arrest, an appellate court overturned it, the state Supreme Court, you know, overturned the appellate court. Now it's in federal court, and once again, challenging on free speech rights. And, you know, in writing this piece, I I spoke with a representative from, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, the, the local Connecticut chapter, and, you know, just getting her point of view on should we have laws against, you know, calling somebody racial slurs and getting her take on it? And I, I thought that was 
very eye-opening and it's difficult when you get into these kind of stories where there's no one right answer it always ends up in this gray area of yeah you need to have free speech protections and then yeah but this this other thing is awful and um i understand you know why people think there should be some kind of legal punishment for it so yeah it was it was an interesting piece to write it was difficult in some respects, but I ended up having a lot of really interesting conversations with the people who are at the forefront of this. And I basically said, you know what, I'm just going to take what they said and put it in there. And, you know, people will be free to make up their own minds. And that's, that's really what it came down to. When you sort of like look at pieces when you're doing these, you know, these big investigative pieces, is this like a process that you put yourself through? I mean, you've sort of sort of explained it a little bit there, but I mean, all of us have our own biases, whether or not we want to acknowledge them or not. But I mean, one of the things that I noticed, and there was also a comment from a reader as well about this particular piece, is that it was unbiased and it was what I call proper journalism. You were not giving any one particular side more than the other. You weren't giving an opinion. You were just presenting the facts and the reader could then take that away and make of it what they wanted to. Is there a process that you have to put yourself through when you're when you're considering things like this? Well, yeah, especially with peace like this, you know, because there's upsides and downsides to both sides on this issue. I realized early on in speaking with, you know, attorney Mario Sarami. He's the guy who's really challenging a lot of this stuff in court. Really excellent guy to talk to, fascinating guy to talk to. And then speaking with uh, Ivelisse Correa from Black Lives Matter 860, I spoke with both of them and I, I, I found myself going, yeah, you know, great point, great point. You know, you're, you're very right. And, and I, I realized there's no, th- this has been ongoing for centuries in our country, this kind of issue. I'm not going to be giving any kind of groundbreaking answer to it. But really, I just want to show what's going on in Connecticut. Here are the people kind of affected by it or in the middle of it. And here is what they think. I don't have an answer for anyone as to what is the better way to go. And so I said, you know what, I'm just going to throw it out there and put it all down. And hey, everybody's going to be free to make their own decision. When it comes to issues like this, Everybody's going to have their own opinion anyway. So no sense having mine in there. I'll, I'll just I'll take the people who are really at the heart of this and explain what they think and why they think that. And I think it turned out really well. It was a tough piece where I really buried myself in this. And I, I found myself rewriting parts of it like, you know, two days before it even released. So I was just really trying to make sure I got it right because there's all these legal courtroom ins and outs, a lot of history there when it, when it comes to some of these, these other issues that we deal with in this piece. I appreciate that, though. I try to get it right every now and then. To me, there was no one side is right in this story. And so I had to present it the way the way it is. The big takeaway for me, having read it, and it is a substantial read, and as you say, there's a lot of elements in there, is for me, I got a sense of there is no perfect law. Laws are imperfect, period, sort of thing. And, you know, we have to constantly review them, look at them. I mean, I found it fascinating, the piece uh, in there about the lawyers and how they potentially could be legally mandated as to how they speak in future, and particularly into their clients as well. That was an interesting one, too. So Mario Sarami is a free speech advocate and an attorney. 
he is challenging Connecticut's law, 53-37. He is challenging that in court, but he is also the plaintiff in a court case against the Connecticut Bar Association because they made a rule change basically saying that in the course of practice of law, you can't say these discriminatory or you know harassing things that a lawyer who knows or should not engage in conduct that a lawyer knows or should reasonably know is harassment or discrimination based on race, religion, color, and all that stuff. And so that was a new law that was adopted recently in Connecticut in 2022. And he is challenging that, saying that it violates his free speech rights as an attorney. It's an interesting rule change. It's modeled after a National American Bar Association rule change that has been also challenged on its First Amendment grounds because of essentially trying to control what an attorney can say in the context of practicing law. And in that respect, you know, it, here's the thing is outside of the practice of law. I mean, we all I don't know if you saw the news, but when, you know, Norm Pattis was doing, you know, a well-known Connecticut defense attorney was doing a stand up routine. He uttered a racial slur during, during that routine, made a lot of news, but that wasn't in the practice of law. So even though he did that very public way, it wasn't in the practice of his legal practice. So that doesn't affect him. So it's really questionable whether or not this violates an attorney's free speech. I mean, you're, you can still go out and say all the things that you want to say outside of your legal practice, but within your legal practice, you have to pretty much be restricted and not say harassing or discriminatory things. I don't know why somebody would do that in the practice of law. That part kind of fails me a little bit. But it's an interesting argument. It's in federal court right now. Last I checked, I think they're having to appeal it in some way. But yeah, that's that's out there too. And you know, that's a- another facet of this, this piece that I came across that I did not know was out there. Thought, hey, this is going to be interesting. We have to put this in the story as well. As I say, the piece is a great read and i would recommend obviously anyone that listens to this podcast to to head over and and take a look at this and and sit and digest it because it really does give food for thought on so many levels obviously about free speech and the fact that what viewpoints come across in there and the different viewpoints i mean i think again one of the big takeaways is dependent on the color of your skin, you're going to look at this in a very different way as well. If you're white and you've never been repressed in any way whatsoever or come across any form of bullying, you're going to have this particular viewpoint. If you're a member of a disenfranchised part of society, you're going to have a very different opinion. It really is one of those, I think it's a great talking point. And I think it's something that needs a wider audience. So I hope that people pick up on this and and it does get shared out. Well, thank you. I hope so, too. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about as well is you do the investigative reporting. So do other members of the team at the Connecticut Inside Investigator. But you do have a thing called the Investigative Fellowship, which I think is unique for a news outlet because I've not come across any other news outlets that have this. Explain to us the concept of it. Oh, of course. Yeah, we wanted to open up opportunities to either existing or aspiring journalists, young people, retired, you know, active, whoever really wants to do a deep dive into an issue in Connecticut has the opportunity to come to Connecticut Inside Investigator and apply for 
our fellowship grant in which you outline and, you know, you propose, outline, and write an investigative piece that we will publish. In exchange, we pay you, and, <laughs> which is always nice. And uh, we pay you a fair amount of money. It's about $3,000 for one investigative piece. And we actually just had, uh, we just published our first fellowship piece about a week ago by Sabrina Buckwalter. Uh, it's called Driving Force, the Uncertain Future of Connecticut's Vehicle Tax. And she looks at the history and current state of Connecticut's vehicle tax and why so many people register their cars in other states. Hint, hint, it's so they can avoid the vehicle property tax. It wasn't, you know, this has been an ongoing problem in Connecticut for many years, but she really brought a new look to it. A She brought video to it. She talked to a lot of, you know, interesting people, gave a great, interesting history about it. And that opportunity, that fellowship is is open to anybody who wants to apply. Obviously, you have to come to us with an idea, one that we think is actionable. And you have to come to us with a plan saying, this is, this is what I want to do. This is how I think I'm going to do it. And if we accept your fellowship application, you get to, you know, we will work with you to make sure you get the best product that you can. I was happy to, you know, help Sabrina in a couple different ways to really get the piece refined and, you know, point her in some different directions of who to talk to because she was new to the state. We want that opportunity out there for other people because, you know, right now we're a staff of three writers and, you know, putting out this many investigations is tough and we're willing to pay for help. So uh, we'd love to see more applications come in, students, retired journalists, active journalists, whoever it might be. We'd be happy to listen to your idea and meet with you and figure out if this is something that can work and we can turn your idea into a, a published piece to go on our website. And we should just make it clear as well, or I'll make it clear. You know, when it comes to investigative journalism, this isn't a quick hit. I mean, it takes time. Like you said, it takes effort. You know, if somebody does apply for it, I know you guys will apply your set of criteria to it, not only, you know, being a resource to, as you say, to the journalists and can point them in the direction, but it's it's going to be in the voice of the Connecticut Inside Investigator and obviously meet your requirements. But it shows, again, that if you want to do this type of journalism, and, and sadly, there isn't enough of this journalism because it does take time. So anyone who's thinking of doing it, don't think you're going to do this, you know, in five or 10 minutes. This is something that could take a fair amount of time, a fair amount of rewrites as well. And to say, and, and it's going to have to meet all the criteria that you guys want as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, we have standards, we have the ways in which we like to present stories and it, which, which I think are very effective ways. You know, they're not just for fun. I think they're effective. And, um, you know, Sabrina did a great job. She also worked on this for months. I mean, she had already been working on it on her own before she even came to us. Just because she was interested, and I loved that about her. I was, hey, she's just doing this anyway. You know, nobody's nobody's paying her for it. She's just interested. This is the perfect kind of person to write this story. So it's open. You can go to our website and click on the the fellowship button there and check it out. And yeah, we really encourage people to take a look because if you have something if you have a story idea in mind and you think there's something worth looking into come tell us about it we'll pay you for your we'll pay you for your time if we accept your application and we'll get a published piece out of you so i think it's worth it for us and it's worth it for the potential journalist out there 
Mark Fitch, Senior Investigative Reporter for the Connecticut Inside Investigator. It's always a pleasure talking to you and the team. Congratulations on the first six months of this brand new news outlet and the amazing stories that you have been breaking and investigating. And uh, we can't wait to see, as you say, what the next six months hold. But in the meantime, thank you again for coming back to Connecticut East this week. Thank you so much, Brian. Always a pleasure. And if you haven't read anything from the Connecticut Inside Investigator yet, then head over to their website at insideinvestigator.org. And if you're a writer or local journalist interested in their investigative fellowship, you can find all the details about that at insideinvestigator.org forward slash fellowship. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Research shows that screening with mammography can detect breast cancer early when it is most treatable. If you're a woman over 40, schedule your annual mammogram today. Women of any age who are at high risk should talk to their doctors about when to start screening. While white women have a slightly higher rate of breast cancer diagnosis, black women are more likely to die from the disease. For more information, visit radiologyinfo.org. Got deer problems? Let us help with Green Valley Tree LLC's Deer Preventive Spray, guaranteed to keep deer away from your precious plants, bushes, and trees for up to six months. With cold weather on its way, deer will be looking for sources of food. Don't let your front and backyards become their pantry. Call Green Valley Tree today at 860-234-4041 or visit us at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Andrew Levine, the Manager for Business Development and Special Projects for the Connecticut Port Authority, has been fined by the Office of State Ethics. A settlement of $750 was reached with Levine after he and other members of the Connecticut Port Authority accepted impermissible gifts in 2017 and 2019 from Seabury PFRA LLC, a vendor who was seeking business from the authority. Levine accepted a ticket from Seabury to a National Hockey League playoff game in Boston in 2019 as well as food and hospitality and failed to report it to the Office of State Ethics or pay the gift back within the required 30-day window. Peter Lewandowski from the Office of State Ethics said the amount of the fine imposed on Levine was based on Levine's acknowledgement of his wrongdoing and his cooperation with the Ethics Office during the investigation, plus the fact Levine did ultimately pay Seabree LLC back for the gifts. State employees and public officials are prohibited from accepting gifts, and in a previous settlement, Seabury agreed to pay a fine of $10,000 for their part in the matter. As to whether any further authority staff or board members were being investigated or might be fined for their acceptance of the impermissible gifts, the Office of State Ethics said they were unable to comment further. Controversy surrounding the displaying of rainbow pride flags in Stonington schools recently was put to rest at a special meeting of the Board of Education. The Board of Education meeting was attended by parents, teachers and students where a unanimous decision by the board was made to allow the flags back into classrooms. Marianne Butler is the superintendent of Stonington Public Schools and read out her official statement. These flags are statements of diversity, equity and inclusion that cross party lines and are not partisan. We demonstrate diversity, equity and inclusion work in many ways, including in our curriculum. Displaying the pride flag is an important visual reminder of our commitment to that work. 
It's in keeping with the Board of Education's diversity, equity, inclusion second goal. But not all members of the community were in agreement with the decision, as Stonington resident and parent Ashley Tuell expressed during public comment at the meeting. The flag itself, although not in the way it was created, has become political, not by the actions of any of us, but through today's society. And I just think we need to make sure that we are creating safe learning space for all students, regardless of their sexual preferences, regardless of their religious convictions, regardless of their gender identity. It needs to be safe for all students. The controversy began when alleged complaints from some parents about the flags being political in nature caused the school board to temporarily remove them, only to replace them days later after seeking legal advice as to whether they have broken school rules on partisan political displays in the first place. Over 200 technical and service support staff from Wyndham Hospital took part in a two-day strike recently. All of them are members of the AFT Local 5099 union and were protesting over inadequate pay and rising health insurance premiums against their employer, Hartford Healthcare. Heather Howlett is the union president of WCMH United Employees and says despite the fact their employer has offered health insurance premium relief, it doesn't take into account larger premium increases. With them wanting a four-year contract, that means that three years from now, who knows how much that premium would be. For example, contract that just expired in the 2021 benefits, which is what we're still paying those rates currently, they reduced our percentage by 3% and we still paid more because the actual premium went up 6%. Howlett also said Hartford Healthcare has offered wage increases in previous union negotiations, but the increases don't cover everyone. So their offer, what they're calling market increases, pertains to 88 of my around 265 members. The rest of the 265 are looking at, I think it's two, two and a half percent increase, of which also they just announced that they're giving everybody else in Hartford HealthCare a three percent increase. The technical healthcare workers have joined nursing staff from Wyndham Hospital, who recently went on a two-day strike as well over similar contract issues. In a statement, Hartford HealthCare said they have offered a contract they believe is fair and are disappointed the unions have walked out on Wyndham Hospital's patients. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer are undertaking clinical trials of a new human vaccine they hope will protect people against Lyme disease caused by tick bites. The trials, which are in their third phase, are being conducted in U.S. states known for high Lyme disease cases like Connecticut and New York, as well as countries in Europe. Dr. Peter Gray Jackson Booth is a principal investigator with Care Access who are undertaking the trials for Pfizer and explains the four-injection process people will go through for the trial. The primary series is three shots where it's a one-to-one chance of receiving either the study drug or placebo that occurs starting now through the end of this year with the third dose occurring in the spring of next year. And then there's a booster one year later. We will track all our participants through two Lyme disease seasons starting next year for any tick bites or potential infections and seeing how they do. And Jackson Booth says they're looking for many different people to be a part of the study. If you're already at risk, whether it's a family that likes to hike or kids who are playing sports or you're working in forested areas, whatever is your exposure, you have the opportunity to be active in the fight against Lyme disease by participating in this study. 
The trial is being conducted on around 6,000 people worldwide and as young as five years of age for the next two and a half years. It's the only Lyme disease vaccine currently in development in the world and the first one in over 20 years for human use since Lyme Ricks, which was developed back in the 1990s, was controversially removed from the market. If the new Pfizer vaccine proves successful and gets FDA approval, it could potentially be available around 2025. According to the CDC, every year in the US alone, over half a million people are affected by Lyme disease. And Channel 3 Kids Camp in Andover is seeking buyers or potential partners for a new way forward after announcing its current operation model has become unsustainable amid financial difficulties brought on in part by the COVID-19 pandemic. Samuel Brumer, chairman of the camp's board of directors, said in a statement, it has now become clear to the board of directors that the traditional operational model of running on more than 50% fundraising is no longer sustainable. The camp has offered recreational and educational camp experiences for children and adults, regardless of economic, physical or developmental challenges, for 100 years. Those interested in reaching out for potential partnership or other opportunities can email summercamp22 at channel3kidscamp.org. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.